Welcome back to the Prairie Pod. I am so excited today, Mike. Are you excited? I'm really excited. I love this topic today, you know? Well, you would. What, you say that like it's a bad thing. <laughs> no, I don't mean it as a bad thing. I finally feel like I'm in my element here with I know, this talk that's today. what I meant. Yeah. Gosh, well, you take everything I say like it's negative, I swear. Wow. I was saying it as a compliment. Like, you're going to own this, Mike. Bless your heart, Megan. Do you mean that in the sarcastic way? Or the nice way, asking See, for a friend. I only know it as a sarcastic way because you told me it could be a sarcastic. Like, <laughs> I always meant it with the utmost sincerity. With you know? love. Okay, I'm going to pretend like you meant it with love right now. We're really excited because we're sitting mm-hmm. here with three very special people, also very talented and amazing people. And so we're going to let them introduce themselves, uh, and then we'll tell you what we're talking about today. Sarah? Hi, I'm Sarah Vosick. I'm the wildlife biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service at the Morris Wetland Management District in Morris, Minnesota. Hi, I'm Darren Carlson. I'm with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. I'm the monitoring coordinator for the State Wildlife Action Plan, and I reside in St. Paul. And I'm Marissa Allering. I'm the lead prairie ecologist for the Nature Conservancy in Minnesota, North Dakota, and South Dakota. Marissa wins today for covering the most number of states. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all, all at once. The biggest area. It's a lot of prairie. You're the winner. <laughs> it's a lot of prairie. Lot mm-hmm. of Thanks so much for coming, you guys. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I made a big drive, a couple of you. so. I know, super nice. And we brought all of these fantastic, amazing people here because we are going to talk about the Grassland Monitoring Team. Did you know that even prairies need a health checkup? This is right. Like, don't sing mm. the song. Don't sing it. Resist. I, I, what song are you talking oh, about? Oh, boy. <laughs> the one you were singing the entire time we planned this episode. <laughs> we're not going to sing it because we just won't. So anyway, it turns out there's a whole team of scientists who are looking at the health of Minnesota prairies. And what we hope that they're finding is that there's some diversity, maybe some resilience and persistence. These are all top marks that we want to give the prairie. So we're hopeful that that's some of what we're seeing. But we're also going to talk through why this is important, why we might be seeing some other things that aren't as positive, and, you know, why this all matters. Why should we give the prairies a health checkup? So, okay, back in season two, if you remember, in episode seven, we talked about how do I know if I'm doing a good job, and we mentioned the grassland monitoring team then, but we just did it in like a cursory way with all the other choices you could make for monitoring. So we wanted to take a deeper dive here in season three and so I also heard from Mike that they're spicy now. So I want to hear what that means. Spicy. Aaron. Just like some Missouri barbecue, man. Mm. That's right. <laughs> Marissa knows what I'm talking about. Yes, absolutely. I, miss that. <laughs> I can't I can't with you. So <laughs> we're gonna <laughs> barbecue aside, we're gonna start with a little bit, I know you guys said what your titles are, but we're gonna talk, um, have you tell us a little bit about what you each do for your jobs in addition to doing the grassland monitoring team. So Sarah, tell us a little bit about what you do. Sure, so the office that I work at is part of the National Wildlife Refuge System, and so we're a land management office, first and foremost, and I have, I'm pretty sure, the best job on the staff because I get to help with some of the on the ground management things like prescribed burning and grazing and that kind of stuff, but I also get to sort of um, do a little checkup on how all that stuff is going. So my job is to coordinate all of the monitoring surveys and research that goes on in our district. So I get to have, kind of get my fingers in a little bit of all the different management activities that we do. 
And we get to play on the prairie. We do get together. to play on the prairie together, which is fun. Yeah. I've seen it. I've seen it. <laughs> Mike's a witness. He knows that it happens. <laughs> Sarah actually took the very first photo that was on the Prairie Pod website. I did? You did. Oh. On a hillside somewhere. I'll have to go back and look. Yeah, you did a great job. See, you're so memorable. It's <laughs> <laughs> memorable for us. Darren, tell us a little bit about what you do. Well, I am part of the non-game wildlife program. And but before that, I was part of no program other than a plan, the State Wildlife Action Plan, which has now been folded into the wild, non-game wildlife program. The Wildlife Action Plan is a federally funded um, program. All states create one to direct funds for rare and declining wildlife. And I've been involved with that since the, the first one. We've done two of these versions. They have to be updated every 10 years. It was first involved in 2003 and have continued on since that time. So I am now the monitoring coordinator. I was first the data geek, moved into now the data geek <laughs> extra, I don't know, more focused data geek. Plus. Plus. 2.0. Yes, 2.0. And um, so I, I oversee different monitoring programs um, associated with implementing the State Wildlife Action Plan. I'm also involved a lot with uh, the implementation of that plan. The, our folk, or where, the way we're doing it this year is, or this time around, I should say, is uh, called conservation focus area. So we focus in on a geographical location. First one we started is in the Prairie Coteau in the far southwest part of Minnesota. And we've been, now we've moved into the southeast corner of Minnesota and also in the lakes region of Minnesota. So we've got three going on, so I'm involved with that as well. Marissa, how about you? How about your work? Well, I, as a prairie ecologist, I do like all things prairie um, for our chapter. I'm on our science team um, for our chapter of the Nature Conservancy in, in the three states. And, you know, basically the shortest answer I can give about my job is that I bring science to bear on our grassland conservation work. So anything from, you know, carbon to butterflies to plants to birds to wind energy, um, you know, doing the science and, and bringing the literature to, to help us solve our, our problems and challenges. So I was curious, we were having lunch, and you said when you grew up, your family, you guys didn't do much in the outdoors. Mm. So I'm curious how you became this prairie scientist with that upbringing. What was your... Well, we, we did stuff in the outdoors, we just didn't camp. So I, what I oh, said, I think okay. what I said was my mom's idea of camping is the Holiday Inn. <laughs> but we visited lots of national parks and things oh. where we'd hike during oh. the day and then, you know, you stay at the Holiday Inn at night. <laughs> at night. Okay. Um, and so I, we did do traveling and I, I got to see a lot of, especially out west, the big national parks. And I, I just, yeah, I loved being outside. I originally, I came to being a prairie ecologist by wanting to be a marine biologist. Mm. Uh, but then I went to school in Nebraska, so, you know. That made a challenge. Oh. <laughs> so I fell in love with the prairies uh, in Nebraska, and yeah, the rest was history. Far yes. commute to the ocean from yeah. Nebraska. It's hard to be a marine biologist in, in Nebraska. That's so weird. We have like very similar life paths. Maybe there's a connection between national parks and then people becoming prairie biologists. Because yeah. we used to travel around to all the national parks when we were kids. But anyway, this podcast is not about national parks, even though they're very very amazing and you should definitely go visit some this podcast is about <laughs> prairie by golly and this one in particular is about grassland monitoring team so let's start sad i know that's rare that we do this on the podcast but we're gonna start with sarah 
Tell us a little bit about the state of the tall grass prairie and what it means when it declines. I know, big, heavy question. Well, and I, this probably gets mentioned on every single episode of the podcast, but we have somewhere around 1% of our original tall grass prairie left in Minnesota. Um, I think what we forget sometimes when we talk about that is that that little bit that's left isn't always in the greatest condition either, and we're really struggling a lot with um, how to maintain those little bits of prairie that we do still have left, how to protect them against invasion by cool season grasses like brome and Kentucky bluegrass and in some places woody vegetation encroaching in our prairie. So we're kind of thinking about both things, how we don't have very much prairie left, but then also what we do have, what does it look like? And it's not always great, unfortunately. Yeah. So the, uh, the grass and monitoring team, you guys formed this team. I mean, we're basically sitting here with the three developers of this team. Is that right? I mean, I'm sure there are other people involved. Uh-huh. That, that, yeah. Yeah, three of the original people. Pretty close. Yeah. close. Sarah's probably been there around with from it the from beginning. the very yeah. beginning. I came on shortly afterwards, and Marissa. Maybe. My supervisor, Meredith Cornett, was was really involved. I wasn't working for TNC at the time. When it was so developed, I, kind of, mm-hmm. I see. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> despite that, I want to ask you to tell us more about GMT and and what and what that team is all about. Yeah. Well, like Sarah said. Um, you know, one of the main concerns for our team is really the condition of the native prairie. And so that's one thing. We're really focused on the remnant prairie that's left. Um, and it's a, a partnership of people all basically concerned about how do we make the best decisions for managing our prairie um, to improve the condition. So basically, and by that, I think mainly we're talking about like reducing invasive species um, fostering native species and also diversity of native species. So not just, you know, 100% big blue stem isn't, isn't good enough. We want some diversity of species out there. So the goal is really trying to, you know, work together, realizing that we can we can learn a lot faster when it's TNC and the DNR and the Fish and Wildlife Service all working together, pulling, pooling our data to try to understand what's working and what isn't working um, for improving the condition of our, our native prairies. So one thing about your guys' team that I really admire is its adaptive management component. So, you know, in my entire career, really, even going back in the undergrad days, there's been an emphasis on adaptive management as 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 like the secret way to to manage our resources. Is it a secret? Is it a secret? Well, I think a <laughs> way of doing it magic to way. actually doing it. <laughs> Darren's right. I think it is a Anyway, well, yeah, that may. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my point is that when I when I started here, now it's been like four years ago, and and was involved helping Darren, I was so impressed. This seemed to me like the very first team I'd ever been involved with, really ever even read much about, that was really doing adaptive management. And so, just kudos to you guys and the other people that were developing that were at the ground floor of developing this project. But it seems like you're really doing adaptive management. And we might need it since Mike said it now three times, like Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Adaptive <laughs> <laughs> management, adaptive management, adaptive management. Um, Darren, why don't you go ahead and just explain what we mean when we say adaptive management? Like, what are we trying to do? Okay, adaptive management in a nutshell. How can here I go? Um, so it's I would call it in a one sentence answer. It's structured learning by doing. 
But I also like another visual that I think both Sarah and Marissa have done many times. I've done a few times on presentations. I'm thinking of it as a spectrum from just going out there and doing something and hoping it works to doing a really structured research project. It's somewhere in between there. You're still out managing, but you have some structure to it. And a critical component is to measure the results of what you've done and then evaluate those results. Usually you have a model that can take that information. That's what we have. And then you adapt what you do from what you've learned. And it's over time. And the real value, and I think in what we have with this is, as Marissa mentions, power in numbers. We have a lot of folks doing this. If it's just one person, you can't, I mean, you could take, you know, one half of your, your area that you're responsible for managing and, and burn it, the other half graze it, but it's gonna take you about 100 years to learn. But when you have 30 areas, I don't know how many management units we have, about. You should know, but. About, I think it's 70 management units mm -hmm. that we are learning from, people doing different things. And so you can speed up that learning process and just so much more data going in. Well, it's super important too, because like I, one of the number one things that landowners always ask me, um, in addition to what is this bug that's in my theory, <laughs> is uh, they always want to know like, well, what, when should I burn? When should I not? When should I graze? When should I not? And then when do I do it again? And it's like this idea of a recipe, right? And so we're trying to get, which as we say on the podcast, a lot of times <laughs> throw that out. <laughs> There's, you're dealing with nature here. There's no like standard set recipe other than you know you're going to need sugar, flour, eggs, which is your diversity and all of those things. But you're going to have to keep, as you say, adapting the recipe to make it work on the land. So you can't just say, oh, we're going to burn every three years and be done because that's not how nature works. So you guys are trying to refine like when you do make a choice, how does that work? And then what happens after you made it? And then what is the next choice you should make? Right? Mm -hmm. By Correct. Yes. <laughs> and I think it's important to, you know, a lot of, I mean, Mike's right on that there's a lot of misunderstanding about what adaptive management is. And then I think it almost doesn't get used because of that lack of understanding. And the best examples for a long time that people have had to point to are things like really big things like adaptive harvest management, the way that we set waterfall harvest, mm -hmm. you know, for, for waterfall hunting, which is very big and involved and complicated. And until we started projects like this one, we didn't really know exactly how to make adaptive management work on I mean, this is still statewide, but on that sort of local scale with mm -hmm. on-the-ground managers mm -hmm. trying to implement the information. So this is, I mean, one of the first projects that's really successfully been able to do that, which is cool. Yeah, and I think, I mean, some of those other ingredients that you really need, I mean, there's a lot of different pieces, people with different expertise that you need to have. I mean, we have, well, just of the three of us, we're a great core team. We've been together for boy, 10 years now, pretty much. And I don't know if we've ever yelled at each other. No. <laughs> We're very polite. Yeah. <laughs> we hardly ever see each other. Yeah. We talk on the phone mostly. We talk a lot, but this is like we're actually sitting next to each other, which is rare. So we but should be concerned. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe we together. might start yelling. I don't if you know. start seeing elbows going. <laughs> <Yeah>. Anyway. <laughs> but, you know, we also... There, you need to have a statistician involved, modeler involved, somebody that can handle the database, somebody that knows uh, the plants, the prairie plants. Um, you need to have somebody who's really organized. That's Marissa. You need to have <laughs> somebody that is uh, just the overall, just 
kind of knows everything. That's Sarah. And then, then you need to have this data geek like me that kind of can pull the data together and, and put it in a meaningful way so we can make some sense out of what's happening. Not that special, the others don't, but I... A special side note here for Kurt Vosick, if you're listening. Um, Darren just said that Sarah knows everything. So <laughs> <laughs> I just want to... Like I might be blushing. One call out there. Just want to make sure that gets in the pod. <laughs> Marissa, uh, can you tell us some more about the nuts and bolts of the Grassland Monitoring Team and the design and how you evaluate management and its effects, its benefits? Well, um, nuts and bolts. Well, I would say, I mean, it's, I'd start with what we're trying to achieve, which is what you should always start with when you're thinking about adaptive management. Well, what's the objective? Um, and as I said, generally our objectives are increase native diversity, decrease invasive species. Um, we have four. Structural, Structural diversity. diversity. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and the, yeah, so increase native, decrease invasives is kind of two, I suppose. Um, and so, but then the other, the second thing is like, what type of management are we evaluating? And so really what we're looking at here in this model is burning, grazing, rest. Um, which we definitely consider um, a management sure. tool and a specific like decision to rest. Mm -hmm. um, and then how frequently should you be doing that? So do you do it, you know, one to two times every three years or is it, you know, zero to one times you rest it for three years or just once? So those are the main components of what we're looking at is like whether you should burn, whether you should graze um, and how often should you do it? And the other thing that I think is really cool about this model, and I think from what we've learned over the last 10 years is a really important component of how we're looking at this, is we factor in the condition of the site. Mm. So where, what condition you start in um, matters for where you're going to end up, and it needs to be factored into what you should be doing on that site. So if you've got really high diversity, you're in a really good condition, um, you know, you may not need as much disturbance. You may be in a fairly resilient, stable state is what some of mm -hmm. our data seems to be suggesting. And so you don't need, you know, to be really, you know, intensely disturbing it all the time. Whereas if you're in a really poor condition, it seems like maybe some more, more often disturbance. But factoring in that condition of the site, I think is really important to teasing apart what are the management decisions to be making at that, at that location. And when you say condition, you're saying mm -hmm. about the plants. Right, we plant are, diversity. Yes. So we're not looking at other animal groups or invertebrate response or things like that. Not in our model, no. Okay. I mean, I think spots. Darren's been looking at some of that other stuff on on some of the the units. But yeah, it doesn't get factored in the model. So that that's a perfect cue in because you mentioned spicy. <laughs> so I'm resurrecting <laughs> resurrecting this uh, the acronym. <laughs> Spice, sustaining prairies in a changing environment. I actually stole it. I'm from totally on board with it. <laughs> Excellent. I, like it. I, I tried rolling it out ten years ago and it just didn't stick. It was too spicy, I guess. For yeah, yeah. yeah there we go. Maybe. Now, if I can remember, it's sustaining prairies in a changing environment. Just call it spice. Whoa! That's it. You got it. It worked. Yeah. I got ten points. And okay, so been saying it all day to me, though. Don't feel bad, listeners. <laughs> But just to clarify a little bit, so SPICE is a little, is a very, it's an overlaps with the Grassland Monitoring Team, GMT. It's actually a program or a project that I started, our first monitoring effort with a first wildlife action plan started back in 2007. And we were asked to 
provide a paper, a publication or something that was important for us. And the one that I had chosen basically says, don't monitor for monitoring's sake. You know, do it in the context of, of really almost taking a scientific uh, hypothesis-driven approach to it, which I, I agree. Um, but they, they have the terms about surveillance monitoring, which I think they meant kind of status trend monitoring. Mm -hmm. So I was real concerned about just starting up a status trend monitoring program, although that's not what we, we didn't have one really for the prairie, so it was important. And I actually totally disagree with this paper that I, I think we do need that. <laughs> not totally, but I think we do need status we need trends. Both. We need more of that. Yeah. But the, this was an opportunity to take the protocols that the grassland monitoring team had and apply that on this status trend project that we have. So they're, it's one, they overlap. And yep. so the data that comes from the status trend project, monitoring project, feeds into the adaptive management mm -hmm. database and model. Yep. So they're spice. They're so they're separate. It's spice includes birds. Separate but equal. Yes, and within yeah, thank it you. Includes Mike. birds, includes plants. We we think now it's going to also include insects. We're pollinators. Going to include pollinators. Starting yeah. this, we did a pilot last summer, and then this summer going forward. And each year, there's ten sites. There's forty sites total. Each year, ten are monitored, so they're on a rotation basis. And this is probably well. Let's quote Lisa Gelman and Bear here, our other non-game wildlife biologist. She always says, and I'm not going to get it exactly right, but she always says, "Well, we don't want stuff to just look good. We want it to function too, right? So the spice would get at that function, making sure that okay, we've created this really nice, diverse mm -hmm. plant condition of the prairie here. Now, are we getting the animal response that we were hoping that we would get? Because that's what the prairies." It's a whole system of things that are interacting and all kinds of connections that we don't even fully understand, which is why I think the prairies are magic, because they're better than space. I said it! Like, there's so <laughs> many things to... They're the frontier that we need to explore. I'm just going to say that. I put it out there. <laughs> Unbiased. Unbiased as an ecologist in the prairie part of the state. Completely Unbiased. <laughs> I had a colleague from graduate school. He had come up from Brazil and to study prairies. And he said, prairies are the Amazon in the Midwest. They are. There's so many They're things we so don't diverse. understand. That is super yeah. cool that he said that. Write he's, that down, Megan. He's my new best friend. I don't even know his name, but I like him a lot. I can't remember it. <laughs> wow, Darren doesn't even know his name. <laughs> okay. That just goes to show it doesn't matter who you are. It matters what you say, right? Right. <laughs> Okay, so a, a couple things. Tell us a little bit um, about like what's going on with the condition of Minnesota prairies. Like, what are you finding? Marissa mentioned it a little bit when she said that maybe some of our prairies that are more diverse, they're sort of in this resilient, stable state, and they maybe don't need as much management. What's the overall trend that we're seeing with GMT? Darren. Me. Okay. Um, so... One of the things that we've found, we have looked at the data, and now we have a 10-year, 11-year data set, and we've been able to, in addition to the model that we have, we can also just analyze the data in different ways. And, and from looking at that, um, <clears throat> the, I'll just, the overall condition hasn't changed a lot, and it's really not a long time. I mean, that's one of the important mm -hmm. things about monitoring and even adaptive management of a complex system. So you gotta, you got to be committed to this for a while. And so, 
and prairie plants live a long time. So for changes to happen, uh, it's going to take a while to see that. So we haven't seen a lot of changes. Yeah, it takes patience. Um, when you we, say changes, I just want to quick clarify. You mean improvements, or do you mean change in general? Like in general. Either, either way, like they're either improving or degrading. Right. Mm-hmm. I Declining. Mean, mm-hmm. Yep. Changes either direction. Okay. What we have found is that uh, the sites that we that have been in the GMT project, they had the lower quality, as Marissa mentioned. Those that are lower quality have improved a little bit in those in the ten years. A small amount, but a little bit. Um, it was cover of native, native yeah, vegetation actually has increased. Has increased. So we've the so cover of invasive species has decreased a little bit, and the higher quality um, sites have actually degraded in quality a little bit, not very much, and that was largely. And the nice thing is from the protocols that we have, we and and for development of the model, we we have these metrics, pretty pretty simple but powerful metrics to kind of tease apart some of this. And so for the higher quality sites, it's really, we're seeing an increase in woody vegetation. So mm-hmm. woody cover. Mm-hmm. So that's what's really driven down the our metric over, of overall quality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anything to add to that? No, I mean, I think for me, it's, as I'm not a very patient person sometimes, <laughs> it's been a good lesson in like 10 years. Oh man, we should see big differences. but. You know, we we see we see a little bit of change, as, as Darren said, and I think in general, you know, maybe what we expect or predicted, but it's just it's gonna it's a good lesson that patience is important and it takes a long time for. for I change mean, it's to it's it really it really shows how conventional research the challenge there. Mm-hmm. I mean, you guys are you're, you're just you're seeing very gradual changes. You're just now starting to see things over ten years, mm-hmm. and so a typical two year yeah. master's project. I think they have to be really careful about the question they're asking, don't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Yep. Yeah, that's accurate. Well, and then while you guys are trying to evaluate the impact that this management or no management is having, there's also regular change that's going on too. You know, so mm-hmm. are we having a wet year? Are we having a dry year? Nope, we're having a wet year. So <laughs> how is it? You know, and and prairies anyway are always moving through succession, as I think everybody knows. But I'm always amazed at how different the blooms are each year like I get attached to certain species I have my favorites I'm not gonna lie and then when I don't see them as prevalent it's like oh is this bad or is it just fine the prairie's just fine it's just moving as it normally would where it's responding to the environment as it has for hundreds of thousands of thousands of years Sarah um let's say I'm a well actually maybe I'm kind of a prairie manager I consult on prairie management. Let's just say I am a prairie manager, okay? Um, boil down your guys' results for me and tell me what lessons I should be learning from, from your guys' work. Well, I think Marissa and Darren hit on the biggest thing is patience. Okay. And so we have to have that patience as the people that are coordinating this project and making sure that, you know, we're remembering to take these steps like we did when we analyzed the data and look back at it and... and have that chance to look over things but then also our managers need to have the patience to you know remember that it does take prairies a long time to change and sometimes that's for good or for bad and i think that's probably the biggest thing that 
Do Don't do a prescribed burn one year and expect it to fix your period. Well, and probably also, I mean, it's related to that patients by having that long time span view of your prairie. So, mm -hmm. I mean, we all know, right? If you go out and look at a prairie the year that you burn it, it's going to look amazing because all of those mm -hmm. flowers are and grasses are responding to that disturbance. And it's very easy to go out that July and say, mm -hmm. yeah, did it. And then never look at it again until it's time to burn it again according to your calendar. And so I think that's another good message for our managers is we're looking at these sites over and over and over again. And from the metrics that we've chosen to measure, things aren't necessarily changing that dramatically. It's very easy, I think, to go out and um, see the flashy forbs that are flowering out there, the, you know, the nice bright things that Megan's excited to see. It mm -hmm. is exciting to see them, but it's also easy to mistake that for the quality of your prairie right. and miss some of the, you know, the Kentucky bluegrass or smooth brome. They're just always there in the background and, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's easy to overlook them almost, but that's one of the biggest things driving where our prairies are going to go. Mm -hmm. I have to say, I think it's amazing we've gotten this far in this podcast. I, that might be the first time anybody has said Kentucky Bluegrass or Smooth Browns. <laughs> she said it right in the beginning. Did you? Yeah. Oh, okay, good. Because <laughs> I was like, that is one of the major impetuses of this project. Yeah. I, mean, I guess we haven't been focused on it quite as much in our discussion, is really reducing those cool season grasses. Yes. Non-native cool season grasses. Yes. Right. Yes. Just yes. be clear here, we want non you, when you're doing prairie reconstructions, to put as many native cool season <laughs> grasses as possible. This is what's going to fight your long-term problem for you. Niche against niche. Okay. Just had to throw that in there. Yes. <laughs> yes. And it, yes. Edges, cool season grasses, native ones, super important for your prairie reconstructions. Super yes. duper important. Got it. So I just want to make that clear so people aren't like, oh, Megan's been telling me all the time to plant these mm -hmm. things, and now these people are saying that I should kill them. <laughs> What's yeah. happening? No. Two very specific ones. Yeah. Like <laughs> yeah. Grass Two very specific non-native ones. Non-native ones. Problematic. Yes. Okay, so before we leave this topic and jump into other things, uh, I want to cover two last things. So if you wanted, if you're a land manager and you wanted your grassland to be monitored as part of this, how would you get started, Sarah? Contact one of the three of us and we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. It depends very much on the organization or agency. I mean, even among the three of us who is actually the one out there on the ground doing the monitoring and you know doing the survey protocols. Um, Ideally, somebody from your office would be helping with those. I mean, they're they're designed to be fairly rapid, but it is still time consuming and it's not our only job. So we are hoping that the site managers will be involved to some degree, but we have also figured out a lot of creative ways to share resources and make sure that surveys are getting done if people are interested. So other people can also volunteer to help monitor some of these sites. Sure. Like if you're farmville biologist or somebody who just wants to get more mm -hmm. prairie plant knowledge you could yep. volunteer. We do a training session every summer before the field season starts so that we can kind of calibrate everybody and make sure that they're up to speed on the plants that they need to know to do the survey but then also um, you know, doing the actual protocol. And Yeah and one of the things the protocol is neat because there's three levels so we can have the deluxe Cadillac version and then the simpler I call it Yugo version. <laughs> but so for the, the, what feeds into the adaptive management model only relies on the data that's done from the Yugo version of the protocols. And then, but that's like the core data and then you can get more detailed 
doing the Cadillac version, but that takes a lot more. That's where you would need to have somebody that can identify all the prairie plants as opposed to the simpler version. There's a select um, set of indicator plants that need to be identified, that need to be recorded, but they're more, um, they were chosen both for their importance for indicating the quality of prairie, but also for their ease, relative ease in identification. Mm -hmm. And Sarah and Marissa can help you identify those. Don't ask me. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that this methodology is good for anybody that wants to have a systematic, scientific, rigorous way of evaluating their prairie and the responses to management. So even, yeah, contact these three people. Or go, can you go online and get, the, get this methodology now? We do actually have a website. I haven't looked at it recently. So I don't know what's on it, but we'll, we'll have it up on our on our <laughs> webpage. We have a link on the Fish Wildlife Service has a public facing site now called ServeCat that has our protocols and stuff okay. are loaded on there, so we can get you that. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a great for protocol sure. for evaluating your prairie, um, and regardless of whether you're actually part of the grassland monitoring team or not. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think there are people that use this protocol that aren't on the grassland monitoring team. Yeah, and we actually, so we at TNC, we use it in on rest, restored sites as well. Um, and I have taken the protocol and developed species lists for our other sites in South Dakota and North Dakota. Nice. So yeah. that, because the core of the protocol doesn't rely on species identification. And so that can be compared on mm -hmm. our prairies from, you know, east to west across our three states. And then I just developed indicator lists for for the different mixed grass or you know different types of prairie systems. So um, so yeah. And the nice thing now is you're gonna have the prairie reconstruction initiative monitoring protocols, so that you can use those in reconstructions. I always think of it as like GMT is my native protocol, and then prairie reconstruction initiative is my mm -hmm. reconstruction mm -hmm. protocol, and the two go together to paint the whole picture of what's going on in the prairie landscape. Mm -hmm. And now that protocol's done and so it's going to be out and people can use it so anyway that was my little commercial there right at the end mm -hmm. all right let us jump into our next section let's science to the literature science okay this is the part of the podcast where we recommend a book a blog or a paper or just something else that's great and we're going to science it up here. So as usual, we asked our guests to have a pick of one of these items, and they're kind of going to explain their picks and why they chose them. Darren, let's start with you. Well, I already um, mentioned one that I had chosen. The title of it is Monitoring for Conservation by James Nichols and Byron Williams. They're from USGS, Patuxent Wildlife Research Center. And actually, Nichols has another... It's not a publication, I forget where I saw it, but it just says, monitoring is not enough. <laughs> <laughs> a little more direct. <laughs> but, I mean, and that just, it, uh, it just speaks to the importance of having, you know, thinking up front what you're monitoring for. I mean, I guess that's the best way to put it is, you know, have your questions in place. Uh, if you have any hypotheses that you do want to test, what type of monitoring would be the right way I think one of you has mentioned the paper that kind of goes through some of this process too, just to, is it even monitoring that you need to do or is it mm -hmm. research? Um, so there's, you know, it has to fit to the questions that you have at hand. The, the, but the one thing I said, I don't know that I necessarily agree with in this paper, but it really made me want to partner with the Grassland Monitoring Team is um, the, 
that status trend, just not really having a you know preconceived notion of what what your status or trend is or will be. Isn't that is, a specific uh, hypothesis? Or yeah, question, right? right. You're just yeah. out there surveying the environment in some way. Yeah, and and sort of downplays the the importance of that. I think we absolutely need to have that as well. I mean, just think about the the insect apocalypse and. Yes. Um, you know, it's been yeah. like an anecdotal information of of um, insect declines across the across the world, and very few people. There was there's this collection somewhere in is it somewhere in Scandinavia where they've been collecting insects for over a hundred years, and they were able to see just the mm -hmm. the decline in the abundances. But if we'd had something set up a hundred years ago where we were measuring the abundance of insects mm -hmm. and we could be able to, we probably would have seen it 50 years ago or what, instead of, you know, starting to say, oh, this looks really bad now. So there's a real value just having yeah. that information, but it doesn't give you the answers. Yeah, then I mean, you have to go to the next step of why is that? But first thing is to know, you know, to know that why or that what. It's kind of like, here's a good analogy. So like when you're lost, you need to know where you are before you can get unlost like a little bit or else you're just like wandering around <laughs> hoping that you'll see a town or a person or some friendly friendly helper out there in the woods. Kind of works. Right. Kind of, that analogy kind of works. Only kind of though. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, I'll take it. That was semi-nice from you, so or I'm taking lost. it. <laughs> or if you're lost on a prairie, perhaps. Well, that's yeah. easier to get your way out of. Not if it's foggy, but yeah. Well, yeah, if it's foggy, <laughs> it might be a little harder than usually. All right, Sarah. Tell us about your pick. It's kind of related to Darren's, like he mentioned, and it's related a little bit to some of what I was trying to get across before about how until maybe the last 10 or 15 years, we didn't have a lot of great examples of adaptive management being applied to on the ground land management. Um, my agency, the Fish and Wildlife Service and the US Geological Survey, um, got together to try to kick off some of these kinds of projects like the grassland monitoring team. They were actually some of the folks that helped us sort of set up some of the original conversations that got this project going. Um, and after they worked on some of those, um, the folks that were pretty instrumental in getting those workshops kicked off put together a nice little paper just talking about adaptive management in the refuge system, but really it could be adaptive management in any land management organization, I think. It's, so it's called Adaptive Management in the U.S. National Wildlife Refuge System Science Management Partnerships for Conservation Delivery. And so I think it just gives a nice overview of a, a few examples of how adaptive management has worked or not worked for us so far um, and some of the challenges and what it takes to really make it work. And almost not even from a scientific perspective in a lot of cases, but the importance of collaboration and the importance of good leadership and support from your organization's leadership, that kind of stuff is is built into it too. So, okay, I like it. Marissa, how about your pick? Yeah, well, <clears throat> this is related, I guess, to my thinking, my comments about Kentucky Bluegrass <laughs> and Smooth Brown because. Yeah, that's, I guess, one of my motivations for this project is I, I see them as my arch nemesis in life because I walk around the landscape and I see them everywhere. You're such a nice person, though. I can't believe you, oh, you have a nemesis. Yeah, well, if I do, it's it's these two species. It's, okay. Because the diversity is what I love to see out there. It's one of the things I love about prairies. And Kentucky bluegrass is like eating our lunch in so many places. Um, and so the paper I picked is... 
you know, um, the impacts of Kentucky bluegrass invasion on ecological processes in the Northern Great Plains by Jeff Prince and John Hendrickson out of um, North Dakota. And I, it's a really good um, kind of overview for anybody who's not familiar with Kentucky bluegrass or why you should be concerned about it. Or, you know, this is specifically about Kentucky bluegrass, but there's some other papers out there on smooth broom too. Um, but why you should be concerned about it and why it can be such a, a nemesis in your prairies to try to deal with. Um, and, and making sure that we do keep it in check so that we can keep our, our native diversity out there in the landscape. Um, so yeah, I think it's a, a good kind of overview and give people an idea of what they're dealing with. But I was also going to say, I think it's it's kind of funny and interesting that none of us picked our own paper. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> We're too humble. Very modest. <laughs> so we do have a, a draft. It's I guess it's technically not out. It's not right. out yet. It's That's in why review. you didn't pick it. Okay. Yeah. It's in review. But we could, we could share a draft of it probably. Um, so anyway, we have a we have a paper that we have put together which describes the you know the first nine years of data and what we've learned and, and the project and kind of lessons learned and talks about some of the, the management lessons. We can put this on the website then? Mm -hmm. I think so, yeah. yeah. We'll just okay. put draft on it in review. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It can be shared. Definitely do that. So anyway, that would be a, an obviously and a very obvious good overview of, of our project. So and I, I just wanted to give a shout out in the, the paper that Sarah had mentioned. Some of the authors were involved um, pretty um, closely with the GMT, but Melinda Knutson, mm -hmm. who's now retired, but with the mm -hmm. Fish and Wildlife Service, was so instrumental in mm -hmm. making sure these uh, these adaptive management projects through the Fish and Wildlife Service, and then you know with partners have have been successful yeah. with her leadership yeah. and just call and out the paper to her. too and the paper too, <laughs> yeah. To get that done. And then you know when she had us do, you you need to have a project record. You need to be recording. We're like, oh, okay, we do. You're right. You're right. And she <laughs> she made sure that we recorded you know our steps along the she way. She was the know? mother hen of the whole. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's good. You need those. I'm going to mention one last pick because even though I know that we we're throwing this in there, even though I know that we're talking about maybe some more rigorous monitoring, even the rapid assessment parts, it's still monitoring is something I feel like that's scary for a lot of land managers because it takes time. And to be honest, it's not scary in the way like, oh my gosh, prairie plants are looking at me. But it's like scary in the sense of how am I going to possibly do that when I have all of these other things that I'm supposed to be doing for my job as well. There's a real time constraint that we all face in our jobs. So uh, Chris Helzer, we mentioned him a lot. And so this is, and since Marissa's here, we have to mention him since they both work for the Nature Conservancy. I feel like it's just something that has to happen. So he did this blog post about photo monitoring. And I feel like it's a great way to at least see. I'm a very visual person, so I appreciate data very much and all those things. But what I appreciate even more than just raw data are graphs and pictures. And so he's just talking about how it's really good to set up some time-lapse photography if you don't feel like you can do more monitoring or more rigorous things, because then you can just kind of get a sense for how your prairie is changing through time. It's something that I've really wanted to do with drones as we monitor some of our other more rare habitats that are a little bit inaccessible. It'd be nice to just see like, how do shrubs encroach into some of our wetlands? Or what is the time-lapse for that? Because right now we're using aerial photography from like the 30s and comparing it to what we have now, but having a really nice crisp photo would just be great to be like, oh, here it is. It's also a really great way when you're doing management to show changes. I think Lisa 
here in our office had a project where they removed a whole bunch of invasive brush off of a rock outcrop and they did photography before and after and it's magic like when you see what it looks like and it's really you can say like oh we removed this many acres of brush but to see the picture it was just like oh wow they really have changed this entire landscape what it looks like so i wanted to call a shout out to that makes sense the, the pictures we store in our brains are usually largely inaccurate <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> like an actual photo yep. photo monitoring yep. yo megan hey mike why don't you take a hike Especially because we have such great company today. I love taking a hike with all these fabulous people. Mm -hmm. There's no better day to take a hike in a prairie than this day right here. So, as we do on this part of the podcast, we want to highlight your public lands. Yes, you are a public landowner. You own so many things. Congratulations. (laughs) So, there are so many places that you can explore. You don't need a bus pass. You don't need a ticket. You don't need to be stamped. All you need to do is walk on it because people, you own it. So we're going to highlight some of those picks today. We're going to start with Sarah because, I don't know, I just like starting with you. So tell us some places where people can go visit some sure amazing prairie. Feel special or <laughs> <laughs> you're just going right to <laughs> Right. The, feel special. The place that I want people to go take a hike is something that we lovingly call the Prairie Complex in central Big Stone County, not too far from Ortonville. Um, and it's... We call it the Prairie Complex because it's a complex of several different state and federal public lands and even some conservation easements where we're working with private landowners on their property to help conserve their prairies as well. Um, So it's prairie waterfall production area, prairie wildlife management area. As you can guess, there's a lot of prairie on both of them. (laughs) And there are a handful of others in the complex as well. Um, It's a really nice, big, Uh, contiguous chunk of land that's protected and I think one of the things that's really cool about it is that it's not just one agency or one person who made that happen it's several different agencies working together on purpose in an area that has a lot of value both for prairies but also um, it's wonderful waterfall habitat I've had um, Robert Dana who is a retired Minnesota DNR employee has done some um, various butterfly and moth surveys out there in the past and he's told me several times that in all of his travels across Minnesota he thinks that's one of the best examples that we have of true prairie pothole like the landscape the way the landscape itself looks with the rolling hills and pothole wetlands out there and it's it's a lot of fun to visit that's cool Darren how about you have a true choice well so hard to pick Um, Mm -hmm. first I'm going to take a drive and then a hike (laughs) Cheater. <laughs> yeah, I don't like to follow the rules. Just the the landscape, just to get the feel of a what we have of the most intact prairie landscape would be the Aspen Parklands region up in far northwestern Minnesota and extends up into that would be Manitoba, um, and that there's just real great expanses of. It's a little different type of prairie. It's brush prairie. There's more trees. There's groves of aspen. There's a lot of wet prairie. Lots of mosquitoes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just, I mean, it's really a way to feel like you're immersing yourself into a, a prairie, like open landscape. Mm-hmm. And I will say, it, you step out of the car up there, 
when you when you step out the air just is so clean you know it feels like you know when you go up to the north woods and breathe the fresh air and you're breathing the fresh air in the aspen park well, <clears throat> and there's large ungulates there's still some moose not a lot but there's also elk um you know that's that's a component that's been pretty much you know the large um species are the bison are pretty much gone from the rest of our prairie landscape um those are there and the other thing i like is that i i don't know about the rest of you but i i can remember when i first started birding back a long time ago won't age myself other than you go um <laughs> Driving in, in the farmland landscape, you know, you would see American kestrels, small um, falcon, beautiful falcon, pretty frequently on the power lines. I don't, I don't see them. I don't know about the rest of you, but I, for the most part, I don't see very many. Definitely not as much as I used to. Yeah. Yeah. You go up in the Aspen Parklands, and they're, they're closer to how I remember it really? back, you know, hmm. now 40 years ago. Hmm. And You said you weren't going to say. Mm-hmm. I know, but say. I... Okay. decided I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if I have, if choosing a place, um, I'm going to go with, I, and I call it Tympanicus. Some others call it Tympanucus. Wildlife <laughs> I like management the area. Area. I don't know why. Yeah. Potato, right. potato, potato. <laughs> but, um, Wait, which one is right? Second one. Tympanucus? I'm outvoted. <laughs> you said that Sarah knows, knows all everything. the things and yeah. she's that bad. Yeah, with that's those. true. I take okay, that back. So <laughs> uh, just <laughs> delete that part from the back. <laughs> um, it, it's just a, a it's a one that um, first monitored back in 2000. Nine, I think it was, and it's a large prairie, and there's other other um, ownership around. It's very close to Glacial Ridge National Wildlife Refuge, so that's that's it's not quite it. It's just south of the Aspen Parklands region. It's on the glacial. It's on one of the beach ridges of Old Glacial Lake Agassiz, so it's gravelly <coughs> soil. So less prairie or less has been tilled up for agriculture, so more prairie remains, and it, there's. Nice plant communities, high diversity plants, and also just real high diversity of birds, which is, if I I'm I have a strong affinity for the bird communities, and I just remember one time, uh, I think I've, of all the big interesting, I've I've heard, Wilson's phalaropes, seen marbled godwits there. Awesome. Um, there's still I, I remember one time there was a marbled godwit. Well, it's like this little dot off in the distance and. Is that a marble godwit? What is that? Well, it was asking the same thing about me. Marble godwits do this often. It comes flying right out, yeah. circles me three or four times, and goes back to where it was a quarter mile away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I always call them the neighborhood watch patrol. Yeah. Them and black turns. And I think um, one of our surveyors doing bird surveys one year, he had all of the Amadrama sparrows in one morning. And, but now um, they're all in different teams. Yeah, so can't my do. Heart. Right. <laughs> so Nelson's sharp-tailed sparrow and grasshopper sparrow. Um, what else am I thinking of? And what are the other ones? I'm blanking Henslow's on. Sparrow. Henslow's. There was a Henslow's you there. Henslow's. Yeah. yeah. Up at Tympanicus, Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have any uh, prairie chickens? 
There are prairie chickens there as well. They're actually not on mm. Tympanicus. They're across the road. <laughs> you can keep saying it. It doesn't make it not Tympanicus. So, <laughs> it doesn't matter how many times I'll you stop. say it. <laughs> Marissa, how about you? Well, so I struggle with this. But partially because, you know, I cover three states. And so when I think about hiking on prairie, I'm often thinking of going west into some of the, the bigger, big landscapes, big prairie landscapes. Um, but, you know, in Minnesota, there are some really nice areas. And, um, you know, now that I live in the Fargo-Moorhead area now, and so one I really appreciate a lot um, is the, the complex that's kind of right around Buffalo River State Park. So... It includes the, the state park, also Minnesota State University in Moorhead has a regional science center there. TNC has a bluestone preserve, which is also um, a scientific and natural area. And so it's a really nice, um, it's just a really nice complex. And you can walk around that whole area and not even know like whose property you're on, but with the river and the prairie, and there's just, the river is nice, but the prairie there is really beautiful. I would say that Bluestem makes my heart happy because I see very little Kentucky bluegrass yeah. <laughs> from when I walk around down there to bring it full circle. But it's very high diversity prairie. It's really nice, um, beautiful area, and it has very nice bird diversity as well. I love it. I love taking hikes. Oh, I'm sad this has to end, but I mean, the podcast doesn't have to end because we're going to have another episode next week on Prairie Tuesday where we are going to get back to our roots with Justin Meissen with the Tallgrass Prairie Center in Iowa. We're going to be digging deep. I mean, really, really deep, like 14 feet because that's how deep prairie roots go. What? Amazing. Great we're going to talk. <laughs> We're going to talk all about it. We're going to learn about it. It's going to be, there's like a whole intricate underground world that makes prairies i think it's maybe even more exciting than what's happening above ground so we're gonna i know underappreciated oh <laughs> see what you did there underappreciated yeah Get, oh boy. i'm glad you got that <laughs> <laughs> as always on today's episode and every episode before this one you can find all the links for the take a hikes and the let science on our website at mndnr.gov backslash prairie pod this episode was produced by the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources Southern Region under the Minnesota Prairie Conservation Partnership. It was edited by Dan Ryder and engineered by Jed Beecher. Oh my gosh, you guys, thanks so much for being here. Yes, thank you. That was awesome. Thanks for having me. Thank you. It was an honor. Lots of fun. Yes. All right, high fives. Okay.